Welcome back to GEMcast. This is the one and only geriatric emergency medicine podcast with the goal of improving the acute care of older adults. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about medication complications and toxicities. And today we're going to switch gears and talk about a completely new topic. And this has not only medical implications for the care of patients, but also is looking at the care from a system standpoint. We're increasingly aware of the importance of measuring quality of care, and quality metrics are becoming an even bigger part of our world in emergency medicine. So those of you who have an interest in care protocols, in transitions of care, in systems-based operations that improve care, improve quality metrics, improve patient outcomes, I think this will be of particular interest. As always, you can find the show notes on the web, gempodcast.com, and you can connect on Twitter. The handle is at gempodcast. One last thing before we get started is I want to put in a plug for a talk at SAEM. If you will be there in May in New Orleans and you're interested in learning more about how to implement geriatric ED guidelines or basically practices to make your ED more geriatric friendly, or perhaps you're considering converting one of your EDs into a geriatric specific ED, Chris Carpenter, who's an expert on this topic, will be giving a talk May 12th at 11 a.m. So keep an eye out for that in the program. I'm here today with Dane Stevenson and Katrin Tyler. They are at UC Davis in emergency medicine and geriatrics, and they are here to talk about an exciting thing that they've implemented for older adults in their emergency department that has improved hospital lengths of stay and patient outcomes in a number of different ways. So Katrin and Dane, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. So the thing that you've worked on is hip fractures in older adults. Why is this a big deal? Why do we need to think about this? Hip fractures still have such a really high mortality and even a really high morbidity. So about 5% of patients die during their inpatient stay, and still between 20 and 30% are dead at a 12-month period. It's closer to 20% if you're a woman, but it's above 30% if you're a man and fall and break your hip. I mean, essentially, for you to fall and break your hip, if you're an elderly male, you have to be pretty frail. For women, the natural osteopenia, osteoporosis, these hip fractures are just much more likely to represent extreme frailty. And in-hospital death for these people is most commonly linked to complications from immobility, such as developing delirium, which in turn can cause pneumonia, urinary infections, and bed sores that certainly would increase likelihood uh, of developing sepsis or fatal decompensation. So one of the things that a bunch of programs have shown is that the faster you can get the patients up and moving, the less likely they are to develop those complications and the more likely they are to be able to go back to their own homes. So there's a lot of work that's been done on this both internationally and also within the United States. Geriatric fracture programs are basically trying to improve the number of patients that get back to their own homes. Even if you do survive the initial insult, at the moment, only about 50% of people actually end up being able to return to their community living. Those mortality numbers are huge, 20 to 30% mortality at 12 months. And obviously, it's not from the hip fracture itself that kills them. It's from the secondary complications, like you mentioned, of pneumonia, UTI, skin breakdown, etc. So you guys have developed a hip fracture plan or protocol that you've implemented in your ED and your hospital, along with buy-in from other specialties like orthopedics, geriatrics, and internal medicine. What's the purpose of having a plan like this? Well, probably the most important thing is that it really reduces variations in care so that you're not reinventing the wheel every single time you see another patient with a hip fracture. It's very important to try and reduce length of stay. And again, all of that is targeted towards encouraging early mobility. We do have a protocol that everybody's sort of bought into, and we've made a couple of tweaks to it over the last two years. 
But essentially, we have pre-agreed plan whereby patients who present with a hip fracture are managed using a co-managed model so that you have orthopedics managing the surgical and orthopedic issues and geriatrics and internal medicine managing the medical side of things. There are actually a bunch of different models out there and which model each institution adopts depends to a little bit on what your resources are and how much geriatrics you actually have available for inpatient services. We use a sort of orthopedics and then internal medicine with geriatric input. But really the important thing is that the sort of decision is made ahead of time so that you're not reinventing the wheel. One of the sort of the huge selling points that we found for us is that gone are the sort of arguments about which service is going to admit the patient. It's pretty clear now using the algorithm and Essentially, if the patient is medically stable, doesn't matter how many other medical problems they have, but if those medical problems are stable, then the patient is admitted to the orthopedic service and general medicine does a consult. And if they're medically unstable, then they get admitted to internal medicine and then orthopedics does consults only for the ortho type issues. What we kind of decided as a group was that if the patient needed to be checked on twice a day by the medical team, then they should be admitted to medicine. For example, patients who had an NSTEMI or who had a heart failure exacerbation or had some other sort of active medical problem, then they get admitted to medicine and pretty much everybody else gets admitted to orthopedics. Got it. Let's talk about what would happen for an actual patient. So let's get in that potential space of where the rubber meets the road. We have an 82-year-old woman who comes in with a hip fracture. What is going to happen to her? Presumably she, she would present with an isolated hip fracture. Of course, there can be other injuries, but... We, do, we try and limit this to patients who uh, have a ground-level fall and nothing else representing significant trauma. The model we use is that if they're over the age of 65 and a low-level trauma, um, they fit the criteria for this. And as soon as we identify a hip fracture, we call the hospitalist, and the hospitalist comes and sees the patient and says, this patient is very medically simple and is suitable for orthopedics to primarily manage the patient. If they uh, have other medical complications or uh, significant medical comorbidities that they feel orthopedics is, feels uncomfortable managing, they will admit the patient to the general medicine service to have all the medical comorbidities managed prior to operation. We typically, as the ER physicians, have a pretty good sense of where the patient should go, but having this protocol in place really makes it easy for us to say, okay, we call the hospitalist. They're going to figure out where the patient will be admitted to. And by doing this, it really allows us as the ER physician to focus on doing all the, the early parts of the protocol pain management, getting them into a hospital bed and get them ready for the OR as quickly as possible from what we can do. And ideally, this happens within 24 hours. The remainder of the protocol that's a little bit past the emergency medicine step, these patients, uh, they found that the people with the shortest length of stay is when they get admitted to the orthopedic floor. And this this is all part of the protocol as well. Um, we, if there's space, we put them on a specific floor where they have a, a whole team of people that is very well accustomed to managing these patients, whether it's social workers, discharge planners, physical therapists, nursing who are very familiar with how to properly manage pain and keep an eye out for certain aspects of delirium. These are all part of the protocol to help expedite not only getting them to surgery, but postoperatively getting them out of the hospital and mobilized. So that sounds like a great way to streamline the procedure and also to help facilitate the transition of care from the emergency department. Transitions of care are a huge issue in older adults, trying to make sure that all their medications get reconciled, that they've received the medications they should, and things like that. So having systems in place to facilitate that transition from the ED to the hospital and then from the hospital to a nursing facility or rehab is great. It all sounds nice, but is there any evidence that it actually improves outcomes? Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of published evidence supporting improved outcomes for patients who 
a part of a geriatric fracture program or a hip fracture program. And mostly it all boils down to getting to the patients to the operating room in a timely period. There's been a lot of work done in Europe and also in Australia on this. And actually the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons just released a set of guidelines on the management of hip fractures, which basically reiterates a lot of the points that we're making today. The goal is really to get them to the operating room in under 48 hours. We've actually shot for about 24 hours and we've been mostly successful with that. It's really important also that those people are on a routine list. You don't want to be doing them after hours. So the ideal scenario is really that they're done sort of first thing the next morning on a routine list that you have key strategy for sort of getting those patients stabilized quickly, reversing any anticoagulation if needed, and then getting them stable for the OR. So for our listeners who may work at emergency departments that don't have a protocol set up like this, what would they need to do in order to get it going? Who are the important stakeholders that need to have buy-in? This kind of program is certainly a very multidisciplinary approach. It's important to get buy-in from a number of departments and areas of the hospital. And that's really the most important part is getting everybody to agree to a protocol that everyone's involved with. And there's even more to it than that. But from the emergency department standpoint, they have to be you know, pretty well, ready and willing to adopt a protocol. For us, a, a big important issue is making sure that these patients are off of our rather uncomfortable emergency department gurneys and onto a hospital bed as soon as we've identified a fracture. A lot of our surgery department prefers that the female uh, patients have uh, fully catheters in place to limit any kind of mobility or, or having to get a bedpan under them, making sure that medications are, as you said, reconciled, not only that, but ordered and given by the nursing staff, and especially if they continue to stay in the emergency department for any period of time. Nutrition is an important thing. However, making sure that they're MPO before a surgery is also important. And then we talked about having the hospitalist group, having their entire group on board with the protocol so that there's never any issue with calling them and them uh, having a response saying they're not familiar with a, you know, a specific protocol or helps eliminate any conflicts. And having co-managed patients between medicine and, and any surgical specialist for that matter, but that can be challenging. And initially it was for our program, but once this was established, the benefits were quickly recognized and, and the teams, when they started working together, it became a, a much smoother process. We specifically started implementing a regional anesthesia with a fascia iliac compartment block. And at the outset of that, anesthesia had taken some issue with us performing what they considered a more complex regional anesthesia, which certainly isn't any complex at all. But as soon as we kind of proposed that the alternative would be to call them in at all hours of the day to perform the procedure, they certainly said, okay, well, that's that's fine. You can you can perform that procedure. And then other teams that should be involved, of course, PM&R and the physical therapists. PM&R team is usually consulted oftentimes before the surgery to evaluate whether or not they were going to need inpatient rehab or if they were going to be safe for home discharge or a skilled nursing facility. Of utmost importance, and it's easy to forget about them, unfortunately, but the discharge coordinators and social workers play an integral part of this for expediting patient disposition, whether it's to an inpatient rehab or a nursing facility. Even having them on during the weekends is of prime importance because delaying discharge even two days because of the weekend can certainly change the, the numbers. We were able to get a social worker or a discharge planner involved on the weekends, which has also helped get patients out and maintain a pretty good degree of efficiency with the program. So it sounds like a lot of this must have taken a lot of work. Um, and a lot of the implementation that you've done has been on the inpatient side. Are there some specific changes that you've made in the emergency department? Well, so one of the big changes that we made was bringing in the regional anesthesia. We initially were not doing very, we were still doing a lot of distal blocks, but we weren't doing very many of the proximal blocks. 
we decided that we would use the fascia iliaca compartment block because it's so simple to reproduce, it's safe, and it's really pretty easy. One of the big things that we faced initially was that we didn't have any kits that were sort of pre-assembled. So Dane and I actually worked on getting those commercial kits that were sort of made specifically for us. So now we don't have to hunt and gather to find all the little bits. It's kind of analogous to having to, if you had to do an LP, hunting and gathering to find all those little bits and pieces. So that was somewhat cumbersome. So now we have the commercial kits that are routinely stocked on our ortho carts. So that makes it really very easy. And all you need to do is get the repivacane out of the... Um, Pixis. The actual block itself is incredibly easy. It really doesn't matter which technique you use for blocking the femoral nerve, but we found that the fascia iliaca block is very safe. You're injecting well away from the vascular bundle and even from the nerve, so the risk of damage is pretty low. And the other thing is that once trauma also got on board with this whole protocol, then they were encouraging us to do the fascia iliaca compartment block for patients with just regular femur fractures. And so now we're doing the block more often, and so then you get an economy of scale. It means that the residents are very familiar with it and the attendings are more familiar with it, and so that's been very useful also, just some of the logistics of having standardised order sets in the electronic medical record, standardised procedure note, pre-printed consents has also been super helpful. And we also have a policy in place if the initial plain imaging is non-diagnostic. So if the patient still has significant pain, then we either get a CT or MRI. I think the pain management is so critical for older adults, both to relieve their suffering, but also pain can cause delirium in older adults. And then longer term, you want to make sure that they improve and maintain their function and can move around more easily. But in the ED itself, in addition to the fascia iliaca block that you mentioned, do you have a pain management plan or bundle that you use for this hip fracture pathway? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody gets acetaminophen unless they have an absolute contraindication to it, which, as you know, is not common. And we do also give patients two doses of opioids. Depending upon what kind of facility and institution you're in, some hospitals have more access to intravenous acetaminophen. We actually don't just use the oral primarily. We do have the IV available on an individual patient basis if we really think the patient's not absorbing oral meds. But actually, it's one of the first things we get going is get the acetaminophen in, and then they're actually targeted Q4 hour around the clock upstairs. We do give two small doses of hydromorphone while they're in the emergency department before they put the block in. I'd just like to add that actually some patients have very little pain with their hip fractures, and we actually had one lady who'd been walking around on a hip fracture for two weeks. That's obviously the exception. But So you do want to assess and actually see how much pain they're in. Often they'll be almost pain-free at rest, and I just like to do a gentle internal external rotation from their great toe just to see how much pain they have with gentle movement. And if they have significant pain, then we usually go ahead and do the regional block. Something that's easy to teach our interns are able to usually do it independently after only one instructions. As you said, you can use ultrasound, you can use landmark base. It's, it's very simple. And whether or not you have the, the ability, as we did, put together a kit that really combined all the pieces into one, it makes it very simple and very easy to accomplish. And did you have to get buy-in from ortho to support this? Because obviously this could change their neurologic exam. Do they have to be seen by orthopedics first, or how did you navigate that? It's obviously a little different in every institution. Orthopedics was not at all a barrier for us in this particular process. In fact, they were really the people who were pushing the hospital-wide management of hip fractures. They really fully embraced this process. Some of the orthopedic residents, of course, were not quite so on board about the process. The compromise that we worked out is that they would come down, do a quick neuro exam, 
as the processes sort of proceeded, they've realized how safe this is, how you're really only losing sensation to your anterior thigh. None of the rest of the exam is going to change. It's not a dense block. You're not going to get any motor weakness with this or very little motor weakness. So it's actually become a bit of a mute point and we'll often go ahead and we'll do our, document our own neuro exam. And, and as time has gone on, they've been happy with that. Right at the start, they did want to come down and make sure that they documented everything. Of course, it depends a little bit on where the patient's pain is coming from. I think with the people who are having more pain from the posterior components, if they're getting pain from their sciatic distribution, then they're not going to get as much pain relief as people who are mostly getting their anterior pain. And you're not going to be able to tell that ahead of time. So you are only going to be blocking the anterior surface. And what about patients who are on anticoagulation like Coumadin or some of these new oral anticoagulants or Plavix? Is that a contraindication for this type of block? It is a contraindication. It's probably low risk in that you are actually injecting away from the vascular bundle, but the American Society of Regional Anesthesia recommends against doing any proximal block in a patient who's anticoagulated. and So we've followed almost exactly that guideline. It's pretty easy, obviously, if somebody's on Coumadin because you can tell what their INR is and we actually get an INR measured when our first set of labs go off. It's harder for the direct agents, so that involves taking a good history and making sure that they're not on them. And Plavix, and in fact, all the antiplatelet agents are also a contraindication to a proximal regional anesthesia. Having said that, because this particular technique you are injecting away from the vascular bundle, if you happen to have done one, it's unlikely that the patient would have any harm happen to them. But we do generally avoid it. And so unfortunately, that then the patient then is dependent upon just the acetaminophen and opioids. I'd like to see if you could just summarize some of the main take-home points or accomplishments that you found in implementing this protocol For example, how much have you been able to reduce length of stay or reduce pain or patient satisfaction or even morbidity, mortality? What have you found after implementing this for a few years? I think the most important thing for emergency physicians is when you put the block in, it's almost instant pain relief for the patient. It's really kind of incredible. You'll have, you know, these frail older people who are just miserable with any the slightest little movement and then you put the block in and 10 minutes later they're sitting up and talking to their family and they just look so much better for no reason other than kindness that is really reassuring to me actually at a system-wide level we've reduced our length of stay for hip fractures by about three days and we've reduced our time to the operating room by about 48 hours so our patients are now going at about 26 hours So there's been a lot of improvements on a system-wide level. The other thing is that it's just really nice to be working as part of a multidisciplinary team. The co-managed model is a bit of a brave new world in some respects. I know that some places have been doing it for longer, but it's been a real culture change for us, which has been great. The other thing that we've shown is that the patients who do get the block are much less likely to get delirium because they're getting fewer doses of opioids before they go to the OR. That's been gratifying. But honestly, getting the patients to feel comfortable while they're still in the emergency department is probably one of the real bonuses for me. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and some of the outcomes that you've had from this protocol. This is something that many places could implement Instead of having to reinvent the wheel each time we have a fracture patient, having a system in place gives us all sorts of advantages, like you've mentioned. So thank you, Katrin and Dane, for coming on GEMcast. It's been our pleasure. Thank you so much. 
I'm going to try to summarize some of the things that they've covered here because it's actually a lot. First of all, they've developed and implemented a co-management fracture pathway for older adults with hip fractures, and this involves things in the ED such as once you've identified and evaluated the patient with the hip fracture, they get a hospitalist evaluation who helps determine if they are unstable, such as they're also having an NSTEMI or something like that, in which case they can go to the hospitalist or medical service, or if they are medically stable, even though they may have various complications, then they are admitted to the orthopedic service and medicine consults for things like reversal of anticoagulation, management of diabetes, management of hypertension, etc. And this part is going to vary based on your institution in terms of how it could be implemented. Second is they have several protocols in the ER that helps standardize care and improve the quality of care. So one was a pain management bundle that they talked about in terms of everyone getting Tylenol and then giving opioids if needed, but then also in patients who are not on anticoagulation and don't have any other contraindications, they perform a compartment block. And rather than try to describe this in great detail here, I'm going to put some links on the show notes, gempodcast.com, with videos of doing this block online. And then if you are not familiar with the ultrasound podcast, they also do a great podcast on the femoral nerve block, which is another option. And I'll put a link to that as well. But essentially, the way that you do this is you draw a line from the anterior superior iliac spine to the pubic tubercle. And you can do this just based on landmarks or you can use ultrasound. And of course, I think most of us would be more comfortable with ultrasound. But you transect that line into thirds. And at the middle third line, the inner third line more medially, is where the neurovascular bundle runs. And then if you look at the more lateral third line where you've bisected the middle and lateral third... You go about a centimeter inferior to that, and then as you puncture through with your needle, obviously sterilize the area, you're going to first pop through the fascia lata and then through the fascia iliaca. And it's under that fascia iliaca that you want to inject your about 50 to 60 cc's of 0.5% ripivacaine or 0.25% marcaine. And if you're doing it with ultrasound, you'll watch the iliacus muscle and the fascia iliaca separate as you're injecting that fluid. It's different from a nerve block because you're not blocking one specific nerve. It's a compartment block. They've described how they've had great success with that in terms of improving pain and then also improving delirium. Katrin also talked about imaging protocols. So if the patient's x-ray is negative, but they still cannot bear weight or are having significant pain, then they move on to a CT or MRI. And this is really important in older adults. Once you've gotten the x-ray, if it's negative, stand them up. Make sure that they can bear weight on that leg. Make sure that they can ambulate at whatever ability level they were prior to the fall. So if they used a cane, get them a cane or a walker, etc., and make sure that they can ambulate. I've had several patients recently who have come in after a ground level fall and the x-ray was negative, they couldn't bear weight. So I got a CT or an MRI and it showed a fracture. And this is just more common in older adults because of the osteopenia that makes it more difficult to interpret the x-rays. Other protocols that you can have in the ER would be things that integrate with nursing. So for example, having a Foley insertion protocol for women that she mentioned. And then up on the floor, they mentioned other things like having coordination with physical therapy, discharge planning, social work, nurses who are familiar with preventing skin breakdown and the care of older adults. And this part is very important for facilitating the transition to either home or a rehab or nursing facility. 
because it's an incredibly complicated system that we function in. We are not just doctors providing care for patients. We function in a system that requires an understanding and coordination with payment processes, with families, with outpatient care, with potentially other services like home health or home PT. And it's impossible for us as doctors to understand how all that works, much less to coordinate the care that's needed. And so people who are social workers or discharge planners can help see what each patient is eligible for with their various benefits, etc., and help make that happen. Overall, the results of this, Katrin mentioned the improved pain control and improved delirium, but then also decreasing time to the operating room, decreasing the time to when they're able to become more mobile and work with physical therapy, decreased hospital length of stay, and ultimately, the goal is to help patients become more independent earlier. I want to end here by introducing the concept of falls as a geriatric syndrome. Geriatric syndromes are defined as multifactorial health conditions that occur when the accumulated effects of impairments in multiple systems render an older person vulnerable to situational challenges. And that's from a JAMA article that I'll put in the show notes. But basically, it's things that don't really fall into discrete diagnostic criteria or modalities. They're multifactorial. So for example, frailty is a syndrome. Frequent falls is a syndrome. Delirium, incontinent, vision or hearing loss, cognitive impairment, decubitus ulcers, sleep disorders. These are all things that don't have usually one specific cause, but are multifactorial. And because of that, they can be difficult to intervene with and manage. And when you look at falls in older adults, and particularly falls leading to fractures, it's usually not just one simple thing, such as they tripped and lost their balance and fell, because maybe when they were younger, they would have tripped but caught themselves and not actually fallen. So clearly things like acute or chronic medical illnesses can make older adults more likely to fall. Cognitive impairment, polypharmacy, particularly if you're on four or more medications or certain medications are very high risk, such as antidepressants, sedatives, neuroleptics, certain blood pressure medications. And then if you have decreased mobility and gait instability, poor balance, if you have a false history, obviously, if you have sensory deficits, alcohol use, postural hypotension, depression, if you need a cane or a walker, and then environmental factors are things like if they have you know, throw rugs, exposed wires across the floor, uh, lack of hand grips and things like that that can make people more likely to fall. And falls are incredibly common in older adults. About a third of community-dwelling older adults, so that's 65 and over, have a fall each year. 14% or 1 in 7 of falls leads to a fracture. And half of adults age 80 and over will have at least one fall per year. And this goes up if you're a nursing home resident, about 67% of those fall per year. So to conclude, falls are multifactorial and incredibly prevalent in older adults. They frequently lead to fractures, such as hip fractures. Hip fractures have a high morbidity and mortality, and the goal of an integrated fracture program or pathway is to improve patient care and outcomes in order to allow those patients to return home or return to more independent living. If you have any thoughts or suggestions or if your hospital has a system like this and you have success stories of things that it has done to improve your care for patients, please leave a comment on gempodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 